touch that again? <laughs> well, welcome and uh, thanks for coming out. We're continuing our study of the new covenant. And uh, here as we begin, let's have a word of prayer. And then we're going right to Jeremiah chapter 31. Father, we give you thanks for your grace and kindness to us. Thank you for your care uh, for us. And Lord, we just ask that tonight as we look at your word, that the, uh, the meaning of it would be evident to us. Help us to understand uh, what you're saying in your word and how it fits with other passages uh, that you have revealed. And so be with us tonight. Bless our time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, so we're in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Verses 31 through 34 are the, the first and the primary text dealing with the new covenant. Okay, and the new covenant's the last of the biblical eschatological covenants that we have uh, given to us in the Old Testament. And this passage is the key passage for that. So we have looked at this some of this passage already and that's what we're just focused on we want to pay really close attention to what do these verses tell us about the new covenant and and we saw that this is a something to pay attention to we saw that with the word behold we looked at the phrase the days are coming and we noticed that that's a a statement about the future it's an anticipatory statement it's very important to the book of Jeremiah. The days are coming. That's a, a key phrase in Jeremiah. We look at the phrase, says the Lord, because it's the phrase that indicates to us who is speaking, but not only that. Uh, this, too, is a very important phrase in the book of Jeremiah. And uh, you'll remember maybe that last uh, week I, I mentioned that this phrase, says the Lord, appears 854 times in the Bible. 745 of those times it occurs in the prophets. And out of those 745 times, 328 occur in Jeremiah. And uh, that's, uh, uh, in, that phrase appears a hundred times more in Jeremiah than any other book of the Bible. So this was a key phrase that we look at it as a pretty common phrase, and it is common. But nobody uses it like the prophet Jeremiah. So that's, a, that's an important phrase for us to note and consider. Uh, then we looked at the next phrase. It says, when I will make... and Again, this is connecting the Lord who's speaking to doing something. That word make is, is actually the word to cut. And if you remember all the way back when we started looking at the covenants, one of the things that we studied was the words that were associated with a covenant. And one of the words associated with a covenant is the word cut where the Lord says, I will cut, I will make, I will cut a covenant with you. 
And so this was the, what appears here when it says, I will make, it's actually the word cut. I will make a covenant. I will cut a covenant with you. And so that brings us up to the next phrase of our study. So this is what, halfway through verse 31. So at this rate, it's only going to take us about eight more hours to get through this passage. But uh, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant. So the Lord is going to make a new covenant. Now this tells us that something different is going to happen, right? It says new. Okay? New is there's something different that's going to be going on. There's going to be a change from the way things are at this point to the way things are going to be. There's some aspect of change that is going to happen here. And the fact that it mentions a new covenant tells us there must be a what? An old covenant or a former covenant. By the way, this is, this is a little bit of a criticism of our English Bibles, where how's your English Bible divided? Old Testament, New Testament. The word testament is the word covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Well, we're looking at the Old Testament, and what are we studying? The new covenant. Okay, and we're going to find that the old covenant or the former covenant doesn't refer to all of the Old Testament. It only refers to part of it. And so it's kind of a little bit of a misnomer when we say Old Testament. Not that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to start a movement to change the way we refer to our, our Bible, but oftentimes it's much better when we refer to the Old Testament, if we say something like the Hebrew Scriptures or something like that, it becomes much clearer uh, about what it is. That's a more precise term. So the fact that a new covenant is mentioned at least implies that there is a former covenant or an old covenant that also has to be in view. So. Uh, this is an anticipatory statement. I will make a new covenant. That's a prospective statement. This is something that the Lord is going to do in the future. Okay? It's a promise about something in the future. It is not an accomplishment at this point. Okay? It's not an accomplishment. It's a promise for the future. Now, a question that comes up and we have to think about is, well, if this is the promise of the new covenant and God says, I will future make a new covenant, then we have to ask the question, well, when, when is that? When is the new covenant actually instituted? Any thoughts right off the top of your head here? Okay, we got second coming. Is that instituted or fulfilled? I'm asking about it when it's instituted. 
So it's, it becomes active, uh, becomes ratified. The f- the, you're right on for the fulfillment. The fulfillment, when, it, when it's actually accomplished, is going to be at the second coming. But when's it ratified? Okay, now, now everybody wants to talk. Nobody wanted to talk, now everybody wants to talk. So, didn't we read something about this on Sunday? Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant. New covenant. So it looks like the new covenant is ratified. It is not just promised, but it, 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 it takes on a new force at the death crucifixion of the Messiah. Because this is, this is the blood of the new covenant. What does it take for a covenant to be put in place? Shedding of blood. Shedding of blood. Okay, so um, we'll look at that. We'll, we'll, we'll be considering that uh, later, especially when we consider how the new covenant is uh, connected to the church. You know, what's the relationship between those two? So a new covenant. So back to Jeremiah 31. It says, I'll make a new covenant. Next phrase, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So here we have identified the parties of the new covenant. Of course, we have the Lord because he says, I will make. And then he says who he's going to make this covenant with. The house of Israel and the house of Judah being the other party. The fact that both the northern and southern kingdoms mention clearly indicates that all of Israel, the entire nation, is included in the New New Covenant. So I think it would be interesting for us to turn back to Ezekiel chapter 37. And I'll refer to this again, so maybe you want to put a finger there. I guess we go forward to go to Ezekiel, don't we? Ezekiel 37, verse 22. Ezekiel 37, verse 22 says, And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Okay, and this is moving up towards the restoration um, of Israel. So, in the time of Jeremiah, though, the kingdom is divided. Right? The kingdom is divided. When did the kingdom become divided? What year? Nine... Thirty... 931, you know, if you said 932, I would give you credit for that. 
So when Solomon dies, that's right. When Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided. Who was the first king of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel? Jeroboam. Who is the king of the southern kingdom, Judah? Rehoboam. So just making sure you, we spend a lot of time on that. and want to make sure you don't forget that. Okay, so uh, the house with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, when you when you look at that, one a question we might want to ask. Well, I want to ask. You might not want to. I want to ask the question. Who isn't mentioned here? Who's not mentioned? Gentiles. And the church. Gentiles and the church are not mentioned. So the church isn't mentioned, number one, because it doesn't exist at this time, at the time that Jeremiah is writing. Number two, even in those New Testament passages where the new covenant is mentioned, it never explicitly says it's for the church or to the church. Doesn't doesn't use those terms. And so we don't expect it. It's not, it's not within the realm of the context to see it that way. So there's an exclusivity with this covenant. It's with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, verse 32. So we're really moving now. We're on to another verse. Verse 32, it says, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. Now we're trying to identify that former covenant. If this is the new covenant we're talking about, here's the former covenant. Um, the covenant that it's being compared to, being contrasted with. And it says the, this, that this former covenant God made with their fathers. Now, oftentimes, as we read the Old Testament, as we read it in the Jewish context in which it was written, when it says the fathers, it usually refers to specific people. Three guys by name. Who are they? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's often how it's used. Um, however, uh, that's not what is happening here. The fathers mentioned here must, just, must be a reference to ancestors other than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we'll see, we'll see why that is in the next phrase. But when we look at the beginning of verse 32, it says, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. So whatever this new covenant is, it's going to be different. It's not going to be like the covenant that God made with the fathers, right? So we can conclude that from this phrase. Now look at the next phrase. Okay, this is the covenant that God made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So now we're starting to get more clues as to the identity of the fathers. 
Because if we can identify the fathers, we can identify what the former covenant is. And so from that, those two phrases that we just read at the beginning of verse 32, who are the fathers? It is, what's that? The, yeah, the Exodus generation, right? The Exodus generation. So if, if the fathers are the Exodus generation, the generation that comes out of Egypt, what's this covenant that we're talking about? The Mosaic Covenant. So here in verse 32, when it says, not according to the covenant I made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, is talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Particularly. So that's not all the Old Testament, is it? No. So, so when we're seeing this phraseology of New Covenant... Contrasted and compared to the former covenant, that's the way I like to put it, or the old covenant, we have to understand that that former covenant, the old covenant, is the Mosaic law. Okay, so that's going to be the first five books of the Bible. All right, so we, we need to have that in our mind. It's the Mosaic covenant. Now, what is the characteristic, really the key characteristic, of the Mosaic Covenant that God makes with the children of Israel? What's that? Okay, the Ten Commandments. But we talked about the other covenants, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Land Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant, and those covenants are... What? Are they conditional or unconditional? Unconditional. The Mosaic Covenant, is it conditional or unconditional? Conditional. So there's requirements. They have to be obedient to it. So God says he'll do certain things, but the children of Israel have to do certain things. And so when we think about the Mosaic Covenant, Really, the key thing about that covenant that, that makes it distinct from the covenants that we have been studying is that it's a conditional covenant. Uh, the blessings that God promises to the nation of Israel will not happen unless they keep the Ten Commandments and the case law and all that that goes along with it. So, moving along in verse 32 says at the end of the verse, my covenant which they broke. So the people of the Exodus, the Exodus generation, broke God's covenant, the covenant that God made with them, the Mosaic covenant, a covenant that they agreed uh, to keep. So let's just turn back to Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 19. Verse 
just want to, want to highlight this. Exodus chapter 19. Well, let me just start in verse 1. How about that? It says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Notice it says the mountain, not before mountains or by mountains, the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So this is the Lord's instruction to Moses saying, hey, Moses, you need to tell the people this. If they obey, they keep my covenant. Okay, we're going to have a special relationship. Now look at Verse uh, 7. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded. Verse 8. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So there's an agreement to the covenant, right? The Lord says, if you do it, Okay, they say, uh, we will do it. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the, uh, the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So, so what I want you to see there is that the people agreed to this covenant. Uh, this isn't some type of unilateral, one-sided uh, covenant that God just tries to enforce upon the people, to, to oppress the people with. They agree to it. The, the children of Israel agree to it. Now, about when, about when was the covenant given? going to be about the third month of 1446-1448 BC. Okay, that's when the covenant is given. Um, so, and, and you think about this. Think about, that, that's the time when it's given, but think about the sequence of events that have led up to the giving of the covenant. 
So what's the big event that happens with the children of Israel leaving Egypt? The last plague, right? Passover. Okay, big event. So you have Passover. And so all the firstborn of Egypt are killed. You would probably remember that, right? I mean, even if you didn't happen to you, you would probably remember that. In chapter 15, um, they're in Mara. Okay, what will actually become known as Mara. Um, what happened there? Bitter waters made sweet. They're made sweet. And then, after that, God gives them quail and manna. Gives them quail and manna. So he, he brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He provides them water and food as they're traveling. And then they come to Horeb and they're complaining. But they're actually complaining before that, but they're complaining that there's no water. And so Moses strikes the rock in Horeb. So the, the people of Israel are already showing their stripes a little bit here. They're complaining, but God is providing. God's providing for them. Even in the midst of their complaints, he's providing what they need. In Exodus 17, they defeat the Amalekites, or uh, yeah, the Amalekites. Remember Moses holding his hands up? They defeat him there. That was a miraculous event. And then they arrive at Mount Sinai in chapter 19, and the people agree to the covenant. And the covenant is given on tablets of stone or tablets of rock on which the Lord himself wrote. So think about that. The Lord himself writes on the tablets. It's a pretty amazing thought. And gave them, gave these tablets to the children of Israel. And then after they come through the Exodus, they come through that part of traveling in the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai, they agree, we will do. What the Lord says. We agree. Moses goes up to the mountain and the Lord is talking to Moses, preparing for the giving of the, well, we call it the Mosaic Covenant to the children of Israel. And uh, do, does anybody remember what the, uh, what's it, the, the second covenant, or not the second covenant, the second commandment is? No graven no graven images no carved images so no images no images not to be of the likeness of anything that is heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth and by the time you get to chapter 32 which is not that far away because you just got a bunch of information there it's not really narrative it's just information about the law. By the time you get to chapter 32, what happens? 
golden calf, right? So the covenant, the Mosaic covenant has just been given, just been agreed to. And before the ink is dry, they break the second commandment, the second commandment. Right away, they break it. So um, the point I want us to understand is from the very beginning, the children of Israel are constantly breaking the Mosaic covenant, constantly breaking it. So let's go back to Jeremiah 31. Uh, we're on verse 32. My covenant which they broke. But I want you to see the next phrase. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Though I was a husband to them. Provider. Provider. Right, we just recounted some of that. So... This is the covenant that they broke, and it's particularly talking about the Exodus generation that they broke even though God is providing for them. Gave them food, gave them water, gave them clothes that won't wear out. He's given them these things, and they're breaking the covenant over and over again. So this is God's grace and mercy and his long-suffering with the nation of Israel. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, when, when you think about all the Old Testament says about uh, the attributes of God, the one that is the standout, the one when, when you reduce everything down to its simplest form, God is known as the long-suffering God. Okay, and that's, that's talking about his covenant faithfulness. He is a covenant-keeping, covenant-faithful God. He's long-suffering. Um, so even though God was a husband to him, they still broke the covenant. Now, verse 33. Verse 33. He says, but this is the covenant I will make. So now he's going back to... The new covenant. So that we have the first word in this verse is a contrast, but, and it's a direct contrast between the former covenant, which was a bilateral, conditional covenant, and this new covenant. And the Lord reiterates that He's the one who's going to make this covenant. That he's the one who's going to cut this covenant with, it says in the next phrase, with the house of Israel. Okay, verse 33. But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now, let's think about this a little bit because in verse 31, it says something different. Look back up to the middle of verse 31. It says, when I will make a covenant with, then what does it say? 
house of Israel and house of Judah. Now verse 33, but this is the covenant I will make with house of Israel. What's happening here? Did God just decide? Did God just decide that, well, I'm going to cut Judah out of all this and this is just going to be to the northern kingdom, the house of Israel? No, no, he's not. So this covenant, this new covenant that's going to be made with the house of Israel is similar in the, to the Mosaic covenant, the former covenant, in respect that it's the parties are the same, the Lord and the Jews, the nation of Israel. Um, so keep this in mind. So we're going to talk about this on down the road when we come to talking about the church's relationship to the new covenant. The parties of the new covenant have to be the same parties as the parties of the old covenant. Okay, does that follow that? So whoever the parties were in the former covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they have to be the same parties in the new covenant. Have to be. Okay, so the question that comes up here is why only mention the house of Israel and not the house of Judah as well? I mean, I think that would make it pretty clear, right? Well, first, we can say, well, why would God make a covenant with only the house of Israel, thinking of the divided kingdom, when they were clearly not only more wicked than Judah, but they were also outside of God's plan in relation to the Davidic covenant. All right? None of the kings, none of the kings of Israel are in line of the Davidic dynasty. So they're out of that. So the second thing I think we need to understand about just mentioning the house of Israel here is that the name Israel is the common name for the United Kingdom. Not, not the United Kingdom, but the United Kingdom back then, right? So, the kingdom of Saul, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon was called what? Israel. Israel. Third, it would seem that the name Judah was used to enforce the fact that the true rulers of the Jewish people would come from the tribe of Judah. Okay? And so when you have the divided kingdom, the name Judah being used there is emphasizing the fact that the rulers, the true rulers of Israel, come from the tribe of Judah and then the Davidic uh, dynasty. Um, but I think probably the most convincing thing as to why the house of Israel that's mentioned here in verse 33 can absolutely include all of the Jews is that it's not just the name of a people, right? It's the name of a person. What's the other name for the person Israel? Jacob, Jacob, who is the father of all the Jews. Jacob, the 12 tribes. 
or his 12 sons. Okay, so it makes sense that it would just be Israel. So with the whole house of Israel. Now, we already looked at this passage once, but I want us to go back to it again. That's Ezekiel 37. So you already know what's coming here, but I want to read a little bit more of the context this time. Okay, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 15 is where we'll pick up. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 13. Keeping in mind the kingdom of Israel has been divided into north and south since 931 B.C. Okay, we are in the uh, 7th century, uh, maybe getting into the very beginning of the 6th century with Jeremiah's prophecy here. But in Ezekiel, who would have been, we'll say he's a contemporary of Jeremiah. He writes this, verse 15, chapter 37, verse 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as for you, son of man. Now we looked at that on Sunday, right? Son of man. So all over the, all over the book of Ezekiel. Uh, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself, write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. So what's the picture here? Two sticks, right? On one stick... Israel. On the other stick, Judah. Okay? One's representing Israel and the other stick is representing Judah, both of the divided kingdoms. Verse 17. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them. So this is all that imagery. This is what those, we'll talk about this on Sunday. The Bible explains itself. You see symbols like this, the Bible gives its own explanation. Thus says the Lord, verse 19, thus says the Lord, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it with the stick of Judah. And I will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. For they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. 
and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So that explains, that explains how you can go from two kingdoms to one kingdom. That God is going to do a work where he's going to gather the people together and they will be gathered together as one. Even though 10 tribes of the northern kingdom went their way, removed from the land and scattered and the two tribes in the southern kingdom were taken into captivity and they scattered the lord's going to gather them all together so back to jeremiah 31 so he says here i'm going to make a, a covenant i'm going to cut this covenant with the house of israel and then we have an interesting phrase, after those days, says the Lord. After those days. What days? After those days. Can we be more specific? <laughs> what do you think? Okay, after the days of... Okay, tribulation. Have you ever thought about this phrase before? Let me ask that question. Have you ever thought about when he says uh, in verse 33, but this is the covenant, talking about the new covenant, I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So the covenant is going to be made after these days. Okay. Okay. What's it saying in verse 32? What are those days? <laughs> yeah, so, so the days that they're under the Mosaic Covenant, which they're breaking all the time. So there's basically two views here that people have about what are the days being referred to here in verse 33 when it says after those days uh, the first view says it's after the days when the lord will make the new covenant that's one view um, if this is the correct view then it would have to be simply saying that the fulfillment happens after the covenant is made which is I, I would put it this way that's like a, a duh that's a dumb of course the fulfillment comes after the when the covenant's made 
Has to co- the fulfillment can't come before the covenant's made, right? It's got to come after. So, so I don't think it. Um, I don't think it, that can be what it is. So the other view is after the days when the Lord operated with Israel under the former covenant, with the Mosaic covenant. After those days, after the days when Israel was under the Mosaic covenant, after those days. He's going to make uh, this new covenant with the house of Israel. I think that if this view is correct, it it emphasizes both the similarities and the differences between the Mosaic covenant, the former covenant, and the new covenant. It sees how here's the parties, same parties, but the difference is that the Lord's going to make this And that the new covenant is an unconditional covenant, unlike the old covenant or the Mosaic uh, covenant. And that when those days are over, you have the new covenant. So it's telling us, it's telling us the new covenant is going to come in after this time that Israel has been under the Mosaic covenant. Then he goes on to say... I will put my law in their minds. So notice again, this is what the Lord does. The Lord is the one who will put his law in their minds. And again, this is a future thing. It's talking about the future. Uh, But I do have a question for you. And my question for you is, what does my law, when, when the Lord says my law, what does the law mean there? What's it referring to? Does it, so the Torah? So this is the law they couldn't keep. So this is the law they couldn't keep. This is the law that says, if you want to be blessed, you have to keep it. So this is the law that says that. Or it could just be instructions. You know, that's what the word Torah means, right? Just means instructions. Matter of fact, we just read that. Uh, let, me, let me go forward to it again and uh, just read for you again what it says here in Ezekiel 37. Um, let me find the verse. Here we go. Verse 24, Ezekiel 37, 24, David, my servant, shall be their king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. So he doesn't, he, he specifically doesn't say law there. Um, so I, I think this is probably talking about uh, the Lord's instructions. Instead, instead of focusing on the Mosaic law, it's talking about the Lord's instructions because this will have implications for the millennium, right? This will have millennial implications. And uh, we know there are certain things that happen in the Mosaic law, the former law, that will not take place in, in the millennium. So we, we see what's going on here when... In Jeremiah 31, it says, and I will put my law in their minds. 
in the former covenant, where was the law put? With the Mosaic covenant, where was it put? It, it was in, they had a box they carried around, remember? The Ark of the Covenant, right? They put it in the Ark, right? But in the New Covenant, it's going to be put where? What's it say? In their hearts. It's, it, it actually doesn't say their hearts. It actually says in the middle of them. In their middle. Go put it right in the middle of them. So this indicates to us why the Mosaic Law was very heavy on external compliance and obedience. The new covenant is going to be an internal arrangement. It's going to be something that takes place in the spirit of these people. Look at the next phrase. It says, and write it on their hearts. And it literally says, and I will. So it repeats. The Lord repeats his um, statement that he's going to do this. I will write it on their hearts. Again, what was the Mosaic covenant, the former covenant, what was it written on? Stone, stone. But the new covenant is going to be written on their hearts. Internal, personal arrangement. Okay, so there's two big contrasts that we see here between the former covenant and the new covenant. Former covenants with a nation... Heavy emphasis on external things. The new covenant will not just be with the nation, but will involve the individuals. It'll be an individual thing. And it's an internal issue with each individual that they will have God's law in them and written uh, on their, what's it say, on their hearts, in their midst, and written on their hearts. Um, then the next phrase here real quick, last phrase, verse 33, maybe we can get this done. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is a key and repeated phrase in the prophets. This phrase I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Um, this is not suggesting that God has not been the God of the Jews, nor that the Jews have not been his people. So the new covenant doesn't bring about a new relationship between God and the Jews, as in a relationship that never existed before. So with the new covenant, what the Jews are not becoming God's people, and God is not becoming the Jews' God at this point. Um, however, we do need to think about what this phrase, how this phrase is used. So um, get your Bible out here. We're going to go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. Genesis 17, verse 8. Genesis 17 is where we have circumcision that's mentioned. 
God's already made his covenant with Abraham. He's already confirmed this covenant with Abraham. And in verse uh, or chapter 17, we have circumcision and God says, your seed, Abraham, is going to come through your wife. Sarah. So it's going to be Sarah and Abraham's boy that's going to be the promised one that's coming. But look at verse 8. It says, And I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. Now look at the very end of the verse. And I will be their God. So, all the way back, Genesis chapter 17, the Lord is saying, I'm the God of Israel and they are my people. Okay, all the way back, almost as far back as you can go in the Bible. This includes not only Abraham, but his descendants. Now let's flip to the other end of our Old Testaments, the Hebrew scriptures, to Hosea, the prophet Hosea. Now, we're going all the way to Hosea because even though Hosea comes after Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. So even though Hosea comes after Jeremiah in the order of the books of the Bible, Hosea actually occurs before Jeremiah chronologically. So it occurs at an earlier date. Hosea chapter 1 Verse 9 through 11 says, Then God said, Call his name Loami, for you are not my people. And so what we have happening here in context is that God is using Hosea and his wife Gomer and their children as an object lesson. For the nation of Israel. And of course, Gomer has been unfaithful to Hosea. And so their child that is mentioned here, his name is Loami, which means for you are not my people. Not my people is what it means. And I will not be your God. Now that's the reverse of our phrase in Jeremiah 31, isn't it? It's the reverse. So you're not my people, and I will not be your God. Verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where I said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Verse 11, then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So he's, again, my people. Verse 23. Go to chapter 2, verse 23. Say to your brethren, my people, and to, excuse me, then I will sow 
her for myself in the earth, and I have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy, then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So here's Hosea's prophecy, and in this prophecy, the Lord is using this marriage between Hosea and Gomer, and Gomer's unfaithfulness, to illustrate the relationship between Israel and the Lord himself. And just as Gomer was unfaithful, committed adultery, so Israel has been unfaithful in committing idolatry. And because of their unfaithfulness, it comes to the point where the Lord says, I am not your God and you are not my people. And it uses the language of divorce. Okay. Now, before you get divorced, you have to be what? Married. Unmarried people don't get divorced. You have to be married. So that tells us that uh, before this passage, Israel was God's people and uh, uh, they were his people and he was their God. And you have this imagery of divorce, but then you have the imagery of remarriage where he says, then I am going to say, you are my people and you are going to say, we are, uh, we are, uh, you are our God. So you have this imagery where they go from being the people of God and God um, being their God to this divorce, this separation for a time and then coming back to be um, the people of God and God being their God. Now that happens all before Jeremiah's day. All that happens before Jeremiah's day. So now let's go to the book of Jeremiah chapter 24. By the way, in that uh, whole interchange in Hosea, where as um, Hosea divorces Gomer and then remarries her, God divorces Israel and then remarries her. In the meantime, did God marry anybody else? No. He never married anybody else. So his relationship with Israel has always been unique. Even when there was that time of separation, it was always a unique relationship. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. And, and notice how we are hearing some of the same words and the same ideas. Not just in the phrase we're looking at, but in the whole context of Jeremiah 31, you hear some of these things repeated. So Jeremiah 24, 7 says, then I will give them a heart to know me. Get that? I will give them a heart to know me. That I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. Okay? They're going to return to me. Now, Turn over to chapter 32, verse 38. Jeremiah 32, 38. So this is a close context. Actually, it's in the same passage as Jeremiah 31. 
Um, same, it's the same broad context, 32, 38. Look at that little short verse. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Okay, just emphasized here. Now turn to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 20. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 20. Got three more after this, so we're going to move pretty quick. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 20. Says that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Again, that's a very close to being a new covenant passage. We've already read uh, chapter 37, Ezekiel 37. I'm not going to read that again. We've already read it. Before, I read both verses 23 and 27 in Ezekiel 37. They both use this, this phrase. And so the last passage I want us to turn to is a passage that comes after the time of uh, Jeremiah, and that is Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. And, and listen to these words. I will bring them back. And they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people. And I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So we hear a lot of these same phrases. We're going to bring it back. There's cleansing, new heart. And I'm going to be their people. Or, or they will be my people. And I will be their God. And so this phrase is a phrase that when, when you look at all the places that it occurs, and you can go back and you can look at these places that we have looked at here in this brief time, but you look at all these places where this occurs, and it's all going to be connected to this in, internal spiritual change that takes place in, in the Jews. When they have this spiritual change that takes place in them, which if we can just summarize that in one word, we're going to say regeneration. When that takes place, then it opens up a whole new aspect of their relationship with God. But God is always going to be faithful to them. And this part of uh, the new covenant, when he says, I'm going to put my uh, law in their minds, in the middle of them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. It's going to be an internal thing. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So that got us all the way through verse 33. So that's pretty good. That's, that's picking up a lot of speed from last week. So we have one more verse to look at. One more verse to look at. Verse 34. We'll look at that next week. Um, and this tells us a little bit of the results of uh, what takes place. And then um, what we're going to do is we're going to try to kind of summarize some of the major aspects of this passage. Okay, just kind of summarize uh, some of the key aspects of it.
just list four or five things there. And then we're going to take a look at how do these relate to other passages so we can identify the other New Covenant passages in the Bible. All right, so we'll do that, and uh, that, that should take us all through our hour next week. All right, so let me pray, and we'll be finished, and then uh, you know, we'll have some time for any comments or questions. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had together. And uh, Lord, help us to be careful and diligent students of your words. And uh, Lord, even though sometimes it seems repetitive and sometimes it seems like maybe we're bogged down and go slow and we just want to pick up speed, help us to understand that these words weren't just thrown down on the page, but you had them written purposefully and uh, no, no word has been wasted. And, and so help us to understand that and be diligent students of the word. And so thank you for allowing us to be here. We ask for safety uh, going home in the dark. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.